0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. I was recently very honored to host a panel discussion with some of the world's leading thinkers on democracy and the American left. I'm not gonna do a long introduction to this one, except to say, firstly, I'm very excited to bring this to you because everyone on this panel is someone I admire and someone I've learned from, and has helped my thinking about American politics move forward. So, long-term listeners will know that I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Anderson, and I invoke her name quite a lot, and that for me, the work she's done um, in private government, for instance, on democracy in the workplace, is incredibly important, incredibly uh, under-theorized in the field, as well as just being wonderfully, lucidly, beautifully written. Uh, Angie Maxwell, I think her book, The Long Southern Strategy, that was my book of the year last year. And for me, in like thinking about American politics, that was just like that missing puzzle piece that you couldn't see what the picture was until you put that piece in place. And then it just helped me make sense of so many other things and why so much of our current politics is what it is. Elizabeth Cohen is a fantastic thinker, and someone, again, I've learned from, I think particularly with her in reading her work and having the conversation I had with her. It really helped me sort of get clear the lack of coherence in how we justify liberal democracy, as well as to think in a more systematic way about how different and often incompatible value systems reconcile against each other, not just in theory, but in practice. And her book, uh, The Political Value of Time, I think is a real must-read. Finally, uh, David Farris. You know, I think long-term listeners will know I have been preaching the same tune as him on institutional reform in American governance for a long time. And, you know, I actually can't believe it took me that long to, to get him on the podcast, given he's probably the person really at the forefront of uh, of pushing those particular proposals and ideas for, for how to make our democracy work better. So I definitely recommend his book on the topic, as well as his column in uh, The Week is always a good, insightful read on What's happening in sort of day-to-day American governance. So that's just to say, I'm really excited to bring you this panel, and I hope you get a lot out of it. We, the only other thing I'll add is we didn't do like long introductions to each panelist on this one. I wanted to just get straight to the discussion and respect everyone's time. But everyone on this panel has been on the podcast before, so I definitely recommend. Um, if you're interested in a particular person, to go back and hear the full one-on-one interview I did with them. That's just on the podcast's feed, which is anywhere you usually get your podcasts. And the website with all the links to that is politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please do share it with your friends or share it on your social media. Okay. So, with that as a very short introduction, let's get straight into this. This is Democracy and the American Left with Elizabeth Anderson, Elizabeth Cohen, Andrew Maxwell, and David Farris. I'm very excited and honoured to be hosting a panel discussion on the future of thinking about democracy on the American left. Joining me today are Professor Elizabeth Cohen, Professor of Political Science at Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, and Senior Research Associate at the Campbell Public Affairs Institute. Professor Cohen, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much, it's a pleasure to be in
0: this group. Also joining us is Elizabeth Anderson, Arthur Thuneau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. Uh, Professor Anderson, thanks for joining us again.
2: Yes, it's really great to see you again.
0: Also, David Farris, Contributing Writer at The Week and Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University. Thanks for coming back on.
3: Great to be here, Toby, and great to be in such a distinguished company.
0: (laughs) And last, but by no means least, Angie Maxwell, Director of the Diane Blair Centre of Southern Politics and Society and Associate Professor of Political Science and holder of the Diane Blair Endowed Professorship in Southern Studies at the University of Arkansas. Thanks again for coming back on.
4: Thank you, Toby, for having me.
0: So the theme I picked for this discussion was democracy, particularly in... um, the context of America. One thing I thought we could just start with is what is our current assessment of how well or not American democracy is functioning. So if I look at, you know, American politics over my lifetime, so the last 30 years, it seems to me we can't really describe it as either a fully democratic or a fully authoritarian system. Um, Professor Cohen, we talked about similar themes last time you were on. Would you agree um, with that description of America or not, and why?
1: <laughs> so, um, yes, I come nominally from the Robert Dahl school of um, political thought, which is that we live in a country that was not designed to be fully democratic, and so it is not surprising at all that we find ourselves in a state that is not fully democratic. Um Dahl, you know, in his work, t- took us through lots of different ways in which institutional design was uh, of the U.S. Constitution was intentionally um, undemocratic. And of course, he his own work explored the idea of polyarchy as something that's quite common, um, even though he did point out that the U.S. Constitution is unusually undemocratic. So even though there's lots of things that that have taken many people by surprise that have occurred um, very recently and then in the kind of mid-range past, uh, this this, in some ways is also not surprising.
2: Uh, yes. Um, I actually think that at the current moment, um, we're at a fork in the road and we could easily spiral down into... Uh, whole scale authoritarianism. Uh, I think that is likely if Trump wins the 2020 election. But on the other hand, we've seen more people on the streets than ever before. A lot of democracy happens in the streets, not just in elections. I think that's a very important lesson that the left has to relearn periodically There's a huge democratic uprising, uh, demands for equal rights, um, demands for authoritarian elements of the state uh, uh, to be eliminated or at least radically reduced. So it's quite possible that we could see a giant uh, advance in democracy. A lot depends on what happens in the 2020 election, who gets elected, not just at the federal level, but critically at the level of the states. One of the interesting features of the current pandemic is we've come to recognize the enormous power and influence of governors, 50 states, federalist system, uh, they've actually Shown that democracy has to work at the state level and not just at the federal level. I think that's also another really important lesson. So I could see us going either way. Um, if I can jump in here, um, you know, I think that there's been a kind of an undeniable
3: um, decrease in the in the quality of democracy as it is practiced in the United States over the past twenty years. Um, and you know, in some ways, you know, we're getting closer to, you know, the kind of democracy that we had before the Civil rights era. Um, and that's sad and disturbing. I think anybody that looks at this objectively who who looks at democracies and, and sort of puts them on a spectrum of democracy internationally, has looked at the United States over this period and said, you know things have gotten a bit worse um, even though I think most of these organizations still consider the United States to be, functioning democracy. Um, We're we're further away from the sort of the gold standard democracies um, of of Northern Europe and and closer to, um, you know, democracies that that tend to to muddle through or or have um, really significant problems around election time, as I think is is quite possible this year in in 2020. Um, And so, you know, I, I think most of the blame for that decrease in the quality of our, our democracy lies with um <clears throat> you know with the Republican Party, which as an institution has become increasingly hostile um to the to the exercise of of people's voting rights. Um I think that's the 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 biggest thing that that these organizations have dinged us for in terms of how we how we run our democracy. I think it's um you know it's for something that's really astonishing and depressing because it's happening in plain sight and 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 the party itself is not really um, care to, to hide it much anymore? <laughs> uh, the president doesn't care to hide it. Um, people that want the president reelected don't care to hide it. Um, they all agree uh, that the more people vote, um, the more that's bad for the Republican Party. And so, when the party sees its incentive structures aligned like this, it, it takes actions that are, um, you know, while they may be, you know, legal in a narrow sense, are, are, um, I think, quite. Uh, uh, quite detrimental to the, the functioning of our democracy as, as we move forward. So I, I agree um, that we're in a very perilous moment here. Um, not sure that we would tip over into full-scale authoritarianism, but I think that our um, the quality of it would, would, would decline sharply again after 2020 were Trump to be reelected.
4: Well, I'll just jump in as someone who lives in a southern red state I feel like democracy has been limited, the system has been limited here dramatically for such a long period of time. And it's institutionalized into things that I know are everywhere, but just the sheer degree to which they affect our voting population, whether it's felons who are not allowed to vote after they have completed sentences and completed probation to our Extreme gerrymandering and the need for independent redistricting, you know, commissions um, we've taken to, you know, here in Arkansas could not get the state legislature to pass a minimum wage increase and took to ballot initiatives, which got it on the ballot. And then it passed by 75 percent of the vote. And now there's constitutional amendment to be voted on that's going to make that process more difficult to get those signatures and get things on a ballot initiative. You know, to when we see national legislation passing, like the Affordable Care Act and southern states blocking Medicare expansion. So even when the federal government tries to help, right, these state institutions, you know, block access for people or override those things. We passed a local ordinance to mandate masks, and the governor came out and you know, amended his emergency powers to say cities couldn't do no such thing. So we have to fight everything in the courts in order to have any kind of voice or representation. Um, And so, and that doesn't even get into the criminal justice system or anything having to do with that, because that's a whole other issue. I mean, we count prisoners in those districts in Arkansas And, you know, many other places, even though they cannot vote, right? So we're trying to do a ballot initiative on Independent Redistricting Commission, and we'll see. But it's gotten to that point. It's like people having to go to the most obscure part of the system, like ballot initiatives, to try to do anything. Um, And that it feels authoritarian now at the state level. I'm a ray of sunshine today. I
1: mean, if I can just say that. Uh, I, so we also um, in New York State uh, districts um, have have districted so that people who are incarcerated get counted. You know, I think that's almost universal for the, um purposes of apportionment, even though they can't vote while they're incarcerated and in plenty of cases can't vote after that. I just, I think there's like, so I guess this is the optimistic view that um, Professor Anderson espoused, like the fact that now the left is using the techniques and tactics in some cases, that their right was so successful at um, manipulating for so long, local and state level Action is encouraging um, because it's just simply not possible to hold the presidency, nothing else, and um, be able to accomplish the kind of work that needs to get done.
3: Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out um, another thing that's so concerning about the present moment is the way um, that the sort of the, the, the authoritarian impulses of, of the Republican Party are embedded in a kind of like a circular nature in some of the institutions, particularly at the state level. But this is also the plan at the federal level. Um, you know, thinking of Wisconsin, right, where, um, you know, the, the Republican governor and the Republican legislature made it more difficult to vote. Um, they gerrymandered the, the legislature in for the foreseeable future. Um, and then you, you appoint people to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, who then rule in ways that make it almost impossible Um, for democratically elected officials um, and for democratically minded citizens or or at least duly constituted majorities to do the things that they said they were going to do in terms of making the reforms um, that they promised to the voters. Um, And that the situation in some of these places like Wisconsin has gotten so bad. (laughs) Um, I'm originally trained as a comparativist, you know, so it it reminds me of Iran, honestly, in the the way um, that you have a, a, a sort of like an unbroken circle of unaccountable authority um, obviously our elections are, are far more democratic than those held in Iran, but it, it's, um, I like to make the comparison because, um, because no matter what the voters of, of Iran do, um, there are these institutions that they don't control and they have no control over. Um, and the more that these sort of like single party authoritarian thiefdoms proliferate across the United States, the more it becomes so difficult to make change. And that drives cynicism. You know, like if you're, just an average person in Wisconsin and you voted you voted for Tony Evers and you you wanted, you know, and you're one of the 54% of Wisconsinites who voted for a Democratic legislature and didn't get one. Um, that just to me, I don't know how long that can be sustained in a, in a democratic polity before people just start to check out
2: I wanna put in a little note of optimism by distinguishing between The Republican Party, which I entirely agree, is is not actually committed to democracy, and the rank-and-file Republican Party members. I think there's a tendency on the left to homogenize Republicans, but I found it really heartening when there was a uh, referendum on the ballot in Michigan a couple of years ago to uh, have nonpartisan districting. And it was very, very uh, obviously overwhelmingly power po- uh, popular for the Democrats because Democrats have been gerrymandered out of any kind of state legislative power for a very, very long time, for many years. Even though there's more Democrats than Republicans, we're roughly 50-50 in Michigan, Democrat, Republican. It was a Trump state, but it only won by 11,000 votes. Um, And that there was low turnout in the city of Detroit. Normally, there's more Democrats voting than Republicans, but the gerrymandering was so extreme that uh, the Republicans have had a lock on the state legislature for I don't know how many years. But nevertheless, Republican, even a majority of Republicans, rank and file, voted for nonpartisan districting. There's a basic sense, I think, among a lot of the rank and file that uh, politicians getting to draw their own districts was unfair. Uh, and and also that it basically empowered a self-perpetuating political class, which they didn't trust. Uh, uh, so, in fact, the slogan on which this was uh advertised was voters, not politicians. Who do you want choosing your representative, the voters or the politicians get to choose themselves by drawing the districts to their liking? Uh, that was a really powerful message, and it passed. And you can find also Republican rank and file. If they get the chance to vote, They, in fact, increasing the minimum wage is wildly popular. Obamacare, you know, if if people get the chance, they know they need health care. They vote for it, uh, so I think there's more common ground among the rank and file, and it's possible to build on that. Look at Florida, which voted to enfranchise felons. So I, I actually think that there's there's more commitment to democratic norms at the level of ordinary citizens, not at the level of the Republican Party.
0: Um, Professor Anderson, as a follow-up to that then, um, do you think since the beginning of the Trump presidency, the thinking on like, what democracy is and what it should be, has been changed by the Trump presidency. It does seem, just referencing some of your answers, that there has been um, a much greater awareness of some of the ways um, structures work so that um, uh, electoral preferences or the preference of the electorate don't translate into legislation. And I think there does seem to be from quite a low base point, an increasing awareness that it's not merely about corrupt politicians. It's about structures that we have that work to frustrate popular change. Am I too optimistic there? Do you think over the last three and a half years our thinking, particularly on the left, about what democracy is and how it should run has changed?
2: I think on the left—and here I'm not talking about, you know, the hardcore left, but center left, mainstream Democratic voters for the longest time have had this habit of you elect the president, Democratic president, and then you just sit back and let them do whatever they're going to do. <laughs> and what I think we've realized—I mean, since, since the 2016 election— I've attended more demonstrations than probably put together all my previous (laughs) political history. Um, And the power of that is really palpable. So that's a lesson on the left. But But I also think we have to address ordinary citizens who aren't part of the left as well. And they're not, in general, thinking structurally. That's not a natural way for Americans to be thinking about things. They think about corrupt individuals or something like that. Not really about structures. But it is possible to to address structural issues. I do think that one of the greatest risks of the upcoming uh, election is simply in election administration. A lot of states are trying to move over to mail ballots. The post office is— woefully under-equipped to manage the huge volume of mail-in ballots that are expected. We have a reduction in polling stations. We have insanely complicated voting equipment, voting machines that seem to break down and not work. There's a very high chance that a large percentage of votes will not be counted. People will feel disenfranchised, and they're going to get royally pissed. We have some of the worst election administration It's absolutely scandalous that in the United States we have election administrators who are simultaneously campaign managers. It's shocking. There's no other democracy, I think, in the world that allows this, because it's just beyond scandalous. Americans have no idea how corrupt this is, (laughs) but I think they're going to find out. So (laughs) I think... We're going to get an education in election snafus. <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily predict which way the election's going to go, but I think you're going to get a lot of people royally pissed and thinking more carefully about the the sheer engineering of election administration and, and what it really takes. A lot of people, if, if their votes are not counted, they are going to be royally pissed.
4: Well, I'll jump in just to say I think that What it has revealed is how much the Trump administration, how much of our democratic system is based on custom or tradition and how much of it is based on the idea that a politician would have some sense of shame or would be held accountable by their party um, to some degree. And I find, you know, students and just interested parties saying, I don't understand, like, how can that happen? Or where is the oversight? And when they realize how little is codified and how much of it has been kind of held into place or the behavior, um, the, how much of the um, checks and balances are done by the goodwill, right, to some degree or a tradition of good behavior, um, it's alarming to them. I don't know if we have solutions, right, but it is, the Trump administration has definitely shown us where all of the cracks are in our system, you know, in our weak, our weak points, um, where there needs to be, you know, independent commissions or some kind of firmed up um, ethics rules, whatever, and of course the most alarming being the justice system, um, and you know the attorney general's office, and that as kind of being a, a last stand um, that seems to have completely eroded now. So I think people are waking up to it. They don't. I don't know if they know what those solutions, you know, should be except to replace person right, in the office, but I'm hoping that, you know, the the fight isn't just that. As important as that is, there needs to be, you know, some kind of, you know, policy and structural change to protect it from happening, you know, in the future.
3: I mean, one of the things I see happening on the left um, is, you know, some of the things that are, like, peculiar— about the American political system um, in comparative perspective. Um, You know, things like the filibuster, things like the Electoral College, um, things like the structure of the Senate uh, that I think not many people on the left really question in a super serious way before um, 2016. Um, I think that a significant part of the left, I'm not sure it's quite enough of the left yet, but I think a significant part of the left is looking at those peculiar things and deciding that they're just bad um, and not sustainable and not really defensible, um, in any sort of modern conception of democratic politics. Um, you, you know, like when I try to explain the filibuster to, to, um, students who are not from the United States or oftentimes actually even people who are from the United States, um, uh, there's like not very many of my students when they get to intro to American politics, understand that it basically takes 60 votes to pass almost anything in the U S Senate. Um, so they're you know, I think there's a sort of a dawning realization that a lot of these peculiarities work against the left right now, um, and they work together in tandem. Um, and when you combine those things with, um, the, the sort of, the the procedural escalation that, that Angie was talking about in terms of like, you know, um, get things that are not necessarily, um, illegal, but they're not codified, right. It's not against the law to do them. Um, it's not a violation of the constitution to do them. It's just a violation of our normative understanding, um, that it, that it has put the left, um, at such a disadvantage, um, that it's like, you have to win a national election by wh- whatever eight points, <laughs> um, to be sure that you're going to take power, That that's not necessarily just. Um, and while there's no way to design uh, an electoral system where, you know, you, like th- the outcomes will always be perfect representations of what the people wanted. Um, I think that there is increasing skepticism on the left about just like you know, coming into power again in 2020 and just, like, leaving it all alone and just assuming that having better people in charge of, of this system will fix it rather than, you know, um, going back and saying, like, okay, how can we fix the system or how can we repair the system in a way that will transcend administrations and that might actually constrain um, a future Republican administration but but could also restrain a future Democratic administration that that, um, that might be led by, you know, somebody with ill will,
1: You know, I was thinking before we were starting and I saw that prompt about the left that I'm hearing a little bit less um, than I was at the beginning of the Trump administration comments that um, kind of minimize or uh, don't take seriously the— authoritarian aspirations, not just of Trump, but of a lot of the people that Trump surrounds himself with, um, especially Barr. And as somebody who studies immigration, like that, you know, it it just, if you deal with that particular topic, it wasn't a luxury (laughs) right from the outset to kind of think that the authoritarian talk was was not serious. Um, But getting people to take it seriously requires... um, anybody who's part of that, I think, to, to uh, who wants to build a movement to get people to abandon um, their attachment to these institutions that they feel almost are a part of their identity because they're American institutions and they're American. And so just as it's difficult to get people in their daily lives to think structurally, um, I think it's really difficult to get people to say that something that they think is part of their identity or that they take to be a part of their identity is um, not okay, that it's not working well, and that it's been um, really problematic. And, I, you know, I kind of keep thinking of, of Sweden, and I heard this term recently, the kind of medical or scientific nationalism that has caused Sweden to take what looks to be a very unsuccessful path in addressing the um, coronavirus uh, pandemic and, like, we kind of have a version of that in in politics, where you know people are so attached to these institutions that it becomes really difficult to get them to to critique them. And one of the debts that I think we probably owe um, the current iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement is that um, that the, that it has forced people to do that thing, which is say like, oh we are not actually behaving democratically. I mean, these are huge demonstrations drawing in lots of people who have never done this before and hadn't thought about it much before. And they're critiquing, like, a really longstanding fundamental institution in in the United States. And, and that, you know, that's, if we can um, do something with that, that's a big change in how people react.
0: Yeah, um... I'm nodding so hard at that last bit, my head's gonna fall off. Um, The complacency with which a lot of the left talked about Trump when he was running was, oh, he doesn't really mean it. And it's like, well, how do you know? He doesn't mean it. You're not in his head. Um, If I can, I'd like to bring in the question of representation in our democracy, um, who we are electing. Um, So, Professor Maxwell, you know this much better than I, but my big picture view is that when it comes to women's representation at the federal level, it's increased a lot, but it's increased very unevenly between the parties. So I think you had like something like 45% of the new, new Democrats elected to Congress were women, but less than 10% were Republicans. So what does that increase in representation, but that very uneven increase in representation, tell us about how our democracy is functioning?
4: Well, I don't know if it tells us anything about how our democracy is functioning. It tells us the problem in the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party made a big turn in the 1980s after... In its effort to win southern voters, to break up that electoral college block that you know Nixon had broken up, but then Jimmy Carter restored, um, you know, Republican strategists were trying to find issues that would, um, you know, get southern white Democrats to kind of convert more fully to the GOP. And so Reagan's team surveyed forty thousand American women. Um, working with Elizabeth Dole and they divided those women into 64 categories. They gave them names like Nancy's and Betty's and Helen's and they figured out that the white Southern women that they needed would flip if they dropped the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, as you know, this was devastating to Republican feminists who championed this cause for so long. Um, And that anti-feminist, you know, base of not just men, but white women that they appealed to um, did help Reagan tremendously in 80. And he picked those numbers up in 84. Um, But it creates a problem in your party as traditional gender roles are continued, continually pressed by that party then you see uh, a much smaller number of Republican women running in the first place, right? And then when they do run, um, are forced to run as kind of an, I would call it an anti-feminist you know, woman, um, is their only shot. And they have some luck in small districts or... Um, or if they have some kind of political connections of some sort, the daughter of a former politician, a political family. But they'll hit a limit because if you build the modern version of the party that way, and it's in the majority, it's not all Republicans, but it's the majority that express those sentiments, something at about 61%, um, then it's going to limit the number of women who feel like they can win the nomination within their own party, right, in the first place. Um, and so I don't know if it's—to it, it, me, it's not as much a function of democracy as it is of the, you know, party choices and the party brand right now and that embrace, right? Um, I think that we dramatically under-investigate the regional component, um, to those attitudes, I mean, I've said—I just say this on every opportunity I get, because I'm hoping it will trickle into the public arena. But, you know, Hillary Clinton, we said, you know, she lost white women, but she won white women outside of the South She by four points. She lost them in the South by almost 30. And there are other pockets like that, too, of course, in this country. It's just they're so dense— and it's so concentrated in a region that it has a huge, you know, a system kind of gets put in place around it, right? And so we we need to, you know, we need to kind of address that um, and quit lumping all of those particularly white women together and understand the roots of that anti-feminism and the effect it has on who runs, right? Who runs, which is the biggest issue.
3: Um, Well, you know, I think this question really highlights highlights another way that American politics has been polarized, um, around another Democrat, you know, around demographic features of the electorate. Um, so that, you know, if you follow polling right now, um, there's this big debate about whether you have to wait for education, um, because non-educated voters are increasingly, um, voting for Republicans and, and college educated voters are, are voting heavily for Democrats, which is kind of like a complete inversion uh, of the way things were 30 years ago. Um, and uh, a lot of these things are, are sort of are correlated, you know, um, and so here you have um, a political party that doesn't seem to be interested um, at all in increasing the levels of, of women's representation in elected office. Um, and so I think that's a reflection um, of, a, of a few things. You know, I think um, one, one important thing is that women now vote heavily Democratic as a, as a group, you know um the, the, and that's it looks like it might be even more stark in 2020 um so the the most recent fox poll that showed biden up by 12 um has women voting for joe biden by t- by 20 points <laughs> um and that's um you know that's just that's kind of shocking um i don't think it's great as a development for for our democracy that you know in the same way that republicans you know eventually came to see you know, i guess they 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 sort of stopped trying to appeal um, to, to African-American voters because, you know, um, you know, they were losing them nine to one with very good reason. <laughs> they were losing them nine to one. Um, but, um, I don't think that the party, you know, aside from, um, some, some people on the fringe, um, is really bothering to sell the Republican party to to African-American voters. And and so I think if that dynamic becomes part of our politics for gender to, um, that seems like um, a little bit, you know, it's, it's ominous. I mean, I I think that there's, um, I think there's, there's very good reason that that most women who want to run for office are going to run as Democrats. (laughs) Um, And uh, I don't know that there's anything, you know, in our political system that we can do um, to increase the Republican party's desire to recruit women to run for office other than sort of like delivering a very stinging defeat (laughs) or several stinging defeats to the party um, that if you look at the data, it becomes obvious to people and they say, oh, wow, like we can't win a national election um, losing women by 25 points. Like what do we do? You know? Um, And so um, this is sort of like a theme that I like to return to, but it's, um, you know, we can tinker around the edges with stuff, but ultimately um, if we want to see more women running for office as Republicans, the Republican party needs to be a, uh, needs to be a friendlier institution to women, you know, um, and, and to take their concerns seriously.
2: I think we should um, put the gender issue in a global context uh, because one of the developments that happens with our globalized capitalism is that there's an increasing emphasis on education as the uh, route to access to decent Employment opportunities. Working class jobs pay less and less in the high income countries, relatively speaking. They haven't, they, they're not literally declining, but relatively speaking, people in working class jobs, jobs that don't require a college education, have fallen well behind uh, in the income. Distribution And this is worldwide. It's a worldwide pattern. Simultaneously with this, we find that globally women have had greater and greater access to education. And in every country, literally every country in the world, women outscore, girls outscore boys. Girls love school. Boys, not so much. <laughs> and <clears throat> what this means is they get access to certain job opportunities that the men have less access to because they're going to college less, or they're not going or they're not getting more advanced degrees. So there's a level of resentment here. Uh, you know we move to a service and information and 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 information economy that's opening up a lot of doors for women. Anyway, but there's another element to this, which I think is also a global phenomenon and absolutely stunning. If you read Thomas Piketty's latest work, Capital and Ideology, he has an incredible set of data on democracies around the world, and they all have evolved into what he's called a dual elite system. What he means by that, in particular, if you look at the evolution of center-left parties social democratic parties in Europe, the democratic party in the United States, every single one of them has been losing working class voters and has been gaining among college educated voters. It's stunning. The trends are uniform. Well, there's different, there's lags in some countries. (laughs) It took longer, for instance, for the labor party in the UK to lose its share of working-class voters, although in the last election, you could see what happened. They got destroyed. It's happening everywhere. And on Piketty's account, what he thinks happened was that the social democratic parties or the center-left parties lost a lot of steam on class-based politics and moved more to a culture-based politics, culture and identity, and, and so pushing feminism, anti racism, uh, being very friendly to immigrants. Part of this has to do with how the rules of global capitalism work. They've been internationalized, and that radically reduces the scope for redistributive policies to help make up for declining prospects of working class workers. Uh, The move to culture, then, his argument is that it's created in all these democracies uh, contests between two different elites. You've got the business elite, and you have the cultural educated elite, the knowledge workers, academics, scientists, journalists, people working with ideas, tech people. They tend to be Democratic or center-left versus the business class, many of whom actually don't have college degrees. If you look at uh, what the median income of a Trump voter, it was above the median I- income. It's about 70000 a year, whereas the median income is about 50000 55000 a year, something like that, in 2016, because they're— They have a lot of small business people voting for them. And on Piketty's accounting, one of the things that's happened is when you just have two elites clashing, because class-based politics and redistributive politics, the scope for that has declined, then there's going to be a lot of, in particular, working-class men who are very upset at their relative loss prestige and their loss of opportunity. And it's all too easy to blame these other people, among whom are women, all those feminists who are now taking these fancy schmancy jobs and and asserting certain kinds of cultural power that they didn't have before. There's resentment, resentment of immigrants, resentment of all these educated people looking down their noses at people who don't have a college education. All these things start to wrapped together in a politics that combines a great deal of resentment with nostalgia for the way things were when working class people were more, were more centered, more of the focus of attention, both in economic terms and in cultural terms. And now that's lost, they feel marginalized. And it's coming out in a very resentful and nostalgic style of politics. But it's also anti-democratic. The knowledge workers become enemies of the people, journalists, academics, scientists. You can't trust those epidemiologists
1: wanted to make one uh, point that picked up on what um, Professor Maxwell said and that's just that, like, there is a gendered component to the Southern strategy that led us to the point where, you know, we find ourselves at, that there, you know, the the Southern strategy um, did not just invoke race secondarily, it also invoked gender and um, understandings of masculinity and femininity that drew on um uh, race as well, and so, like I don't find it totally surprising the split that you mentioned in the your prompt about gender and um, party breakdown, the southern strategy wasn't intending, you know to draw in as many people as possible to politics. It was intending simply to successfully mobilize a powerful group uh, to to, to confer more power on a few people. So then the question just becomes, all right, so we perhaps elect a lot of women Democrats. Um, you know, what do they do both for women, but also what do they do in general for everyone? And um, I think that like that's what we should be focusing on rather than just what the breakdown is by party or by gender.
0: That brings me to my next question, which we've talked extensively about: the problems of the Republican Party. Its radicalism, its attitudes towards race and gender, its, willing to, its willingness to quite um, shamelessly violate democratic norms. And when we discuss this topic of like polarization, I think there's like. And you can disagree, but, like, I think there's, like, two things that go wrong. One, we assume that it's sort of uniform. The Republicans move one way, we move the opposite way. Um, but the other is that the main normative work to be done is how to reverse polarisation. And my sort of feeling is, because of the historical trends that we've talked about, because of the structural stuff that we've talked about, Um, we're probably going to remain a highly polarised country for at least the short to medium run. Um, So the question would be, to my mind, not what's the normative work in how do we reduce it, but the normative task ahead of us is how can we think about and practise democracy better, given the reality of a highly polarised electorate. Um, Professor Farris, I know you've got a lot on this one.
3: Sure, thanks. So, you know, I've I've read a lot of books about polarization. It's been a hot topic, you know, for for 10 years in political science. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of really wonderful work done by by people who don't necessarily agree about the causes of it or exactly how it's manifesting. Um, but but inevitably when you get to the end of the book, um, on polarization and it's like what do we do about this? Um, that's that's usually the point where the author is like, I don't know, you know, like I think I, you know, what if we did this, you know, what if we did yoga together? Like, what if we all, you know, like I, it's just, there's a lot of ideas out there. Um, but none of them are like super convincing in terms of, um, you know, a, a practical path out of our plight of polarization. And so one of the things that I like to highlight about our predicament in the United States, um, is that polarization is often used as a, uh, as a stand-in for being closely divided. And that these are actually two separate variables, you know, so, um, the fact that Democrats and Republicans are far apart ideologically right now, at least elected Democrats and Republicans, are far apart ideologically. I think that's something that all of the, the different camps of polarization theory can agree on, um, is that the elected officials in our democracy are very far apart ideologically, at least. Um, but um, that doesn't mean that um, that our politics has to be, you know, 50-50, uh, in other words, there are countries where the major parties are very far apart, but where one party just keeps winning <laughs> over and over. Um, and there are countries where, you know, like Ireland, where the politics is extremely closely divided, but the two major parties are not, you know, necessarily as far apart as like the Democratic and Republican parties are right now. Um, and so, you know, in in my mind, you know, there's there's two things to think about here. One is like, how do we improve the quality of democracy as long as the era of polarization continues? And as long as the era of close division continues. Um, In other words, how do we act knowing um, that the other party is like highly likely to win the next election? (laughs) Right. And so so what what procedures do we want to put into place and how do we want to act and how do we want to behave um, in a way that might not uh, necessarily invite escalation? Um, And then the other thing is like, you know, um, imagining a world where we aren't actually that closely divided anymore, which is, I think, where we're headed, given um, trends in voting for for pretty much anybody under the age of forty five. Um, these these folks are all voting Democratic by by 15, 20, 25 points, and they've been doing that since two thousand and four. Um, and so uh, let's you know let's imagine a universe in which in which Joe Biden wins the election um, and Democrats take the Senate um, and they hold on to the House um, and they have the numbers to to make some serious changes to to democracy. Um, I think that you know. There's an there's an energy on the left to um, to take you know to take the playbook from the Republican Party and and be be extremely ruthless about sort of everything, <laughs> um, and I would say um, that the the place that you you want to be ruthless um, is where the the features of American democracy um, systematically disadvantage the left in in ways that are not you know not neutral, not really defensible by any meaningful um, thinking about democracy. Um, but where you don't want to be ruthless um, is is in those—the um, the places in our democracy that I think have been most damaged over the last four years, um, such as the administration of justice, um, the, the, the way the Department of Justice is being managed, um, things like just open corruption, um, pretending that the Hatch Act doesn't exist. Uh, you know, like, so, so all the things that the Republican Party under Trump is flouting— um primarily over the past four years um, are things that I, I don't really want to see Democrats do. <laughs> right. Um, whereas, um, you know, I think that some of the escalations that Republicans were engaging in prior to 2016 um, are, are places where Democrats can can kind of push back harder. Um, and so what what I want to see is for the, you know, for the next Democratic administration to take the flaws in our democracy very seriously. Um, to, to move to, to address them, um, but not to behave as if the party itself has a contempt for democracy or that it regards the Republican Party itself as, as illegitimate in the way that I feel like today's Republicans are sort of transmitting that, that belief to Democrats. And I don't know if that, if that all makes sense, but uh, <laughs> I'll stop there for now.
4: <laughs> well, I'll jump in. I think that. You know, I think insult politics are super destructive. You know, there's a difference between people disagreeing on ideas, and then there is the effect that public criticism and insults and what it does psychologically to voters that then become hyper-defensive, hyper-partisan, it becomes a team sport, can't hear a message from another party. And so— you know, just a change in rhetoric and tone is critical, I think. And you see bipartisanship um, you know, test very highly. and i would like I would like to see it pulled more in terms of I don't know if people necessarily want to compromise on positive. They just like want want politicians to like speak decently, you know, to each other. It goes a really long way in terms of finding, like, some kind of—it moves independence pretty dramatically in certain places um, in a way that I think is really important. Um, And then I agree about, you know, as much as there's a part of me that want Democrats back in power to be just as ruthless, (laughs) and no, it doesn't help anything. I mean, there are things that Folks need to be ruthless about in terms of shoring up, you know, structural issues um, and problems that we've seen in terms of oversight and the justice system and all of that. But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm tired of the false equivalencies of the fact that it's a debate that science is a debate, right? There are things we can debate, right? And it's the Republican Party that took that tactic. And it's a specific group of strategists that started pushing that um, way back into the 70s and 80s, with you know Paul Manafort running Reagan's campaign in the South and deciding that, and and philosophically saying, you know, anti-feminism is an equal, you know, and valid ideology and deserves equal seats on the UN's Women's Commission. Right? There are. There, those false equivalencies are causing us to miss the important debates. Like, there were serious concerns about the Equal Rights Amendment that are important, that are valid, worth arguing about. What does it mean? You know, what do you do with women in combat? I mean, there are valid, you know, issues worth debate. How far do you go in terms of— um you know, in the 70s with post-civil rights, with thinking about things like affirmative action and quotas, right? Like, where's the line? Like, where, what's fair? What works, right? We can debate all of that. When we just debate the, you know, when it turns into debating people's human rights, it's, that's to me something progressives should not, you know, give in on. You know, that's the place to me when it just gets worse. I think that pushback, that is what Black Lives Matter to me is about, is like this is no longer a debate. Now, what do we do to make, to get, you know, rid of structural racism, all of that kind of stuff? There are many, you know, possibilities. There are some things that work faster than all of that. The policy debate. And, and you know, I I, I agree with, you know, what Professor Anderson said earlier about the Pushing on values issues, right? But it's the it was the GOP that started that in this country, right? And Democrats pushed right back, and so we turned it into value politics, and it makes people vote against their economic self interest. Um, and we think that that makes no sense. But honestly, it's because most of our political science research about Like the rational voters and all that stuff are based on white male voters, right? And there are things that are important to other people beyond just their pocketbook, right? So, to me, as we continue to diversify the electorate, diversify the candidates we have, right, we're gonna have to ask different questions. And, you know, we're gonna have to be willing to kind of throw things up in there and go, does this stick anymore? I don't even know. How does polarization feel? to um, the next generation? How does it feel to women who've just gotten involved? How does it feel to people of color? You know, I I just think we're in like in a kind of experimental phase where everything is changing so rapidly. The technology alone, right? I mean, do you get a Barack Obama without social media, right? And without that kind of um, ability to campaign around the party, right? So all of those things I'm going, I know, like way off subject, but the polarization to me also speaks to just a moment of intense change, right? Intense change. And, and people try, just, just like the 19, you know, 20s in so many ways is Victorian values are thrown off and we get this kind of modernism and it, it, understanding and like the no insult politics and the understanding where people are coming from is the only thing that will you know kind of bridge that gap. Um, but it's a hard it's a hard thing to ask a lot of groups to do um, like you know my DACA students who are do I have to justify my existence? You know it's hard to keep asking all of these marginalized groups. To continue to make a case for themselves, you know, and a debate, right, with the other party. So I, I guess I have zero answer. Sorry, I have I have no answers.
1: I, I also have no answers. Um, but you know, I'm reminded that in the. Middle of the 20th century, and then at certain points in the late 20th century, there was great hand wringing among political scientists about the fact that the parties were just too close together and too similar. And, you know, that this represented a really big problem because parties and um, their members should stand for something. And I conclude from that hand wringing and this hand wringing that, it, you know, we can't really afford to be so concerned with polarization. Um, if, you know, if ultimately what we need to care about are outcomes and if it takes polarization to get people mobilized to push for just basic human rights, then that's what it takes to get people mobilized to support basic human rights. Um, I, you know, I do feel concerned. That at least if we're going to be polarized, it'd be kind of organic polarization that people not be completely manipulated by absolute untruths. Um, but again, like ultimately what matters is whether people live in a just society where that the terms of um, social justice are sustainable will be sustained over time. and and I just you know, think that's that should be our focus.
2: I'd like to step in here and just inject a possible note of optimism. (laughs) You know, I'm not, I'm not the, the John Dewey professor for nothing. Uh, Dewey is one of my heroes. Um, He taught at university of Michigan. And he once said that the, the solution to the problems of democracy is more democracy, better democracy. And, and I do take heart in, first of all, we do have some very interesting experiments going on in democracies around the world, engaging many publics. We just select citizens at random, stick them in a room, and ask them to think carefully about divisive issues of the day. Ireland, for instance, has these citizens' assemblies, and they've tossed them really tough questions. You know, in Ireland, They talked about abortion. It's hard to find a more divisive issue in the United States, but of course it's very divisive in in Ireland too. They had tons of testimony, they had experts coming in. They had testimony from women who had abortions, who, who refused to have abortions. They're incredibly thoughtful. They set down norms of discussion that everybody has to be respectful. And they were respectful. You can actually go online, you can see all the videos. Uh, and they 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 deliberated on a whole bunch of issues people could watch the mini publics and, and all of the presentations it's very sober there's no propagandizing they had real information there there's no personal attacks no insults and what do you find is that ordinary citizens are perfectly capable of discussing things without attacking each other There's way more bad behavior on the part of politicians whipping up hostility and fear of the other than there is among randomly selected citizens. And one of the reasons for this is that professional politicians have a huge appetite for conflict. (laughs) They love whipping up conflict. (laughs) They just have a huge appetite for it, and they can take it. They handle it. It selects for a certain kind of personality Whereas ordinary citizens are very conflict averse. They wanna ramp down the level of discussion if they actually have responsibility for thinking seriously about an issue. You can play on that. Ordinary citizens witnessing their fellow randomly selected citizens deliberate seriously and soberly about a topic on terms of mutual respect has an impact on the wider public. It models a different way of doing politics. And it's much more functional. It's oriented to problem solving. If you actually poll people, they don't they don't understand. You know, why is it that Congress is less popular than the Ebola virus? There's <laughs> one poll found that. Why? Because they don't understand why <laughs> here we elect our representatives and then they don't get anything done. Well, You know, if you actually do get a bunch of random people in the room and they talk about it, the evidence is that there's some convergence that people can work together, but you have to set the rules of conversation properly. So I've been very influenced by Dan Kahan's Cultural Cognition Project. He's been trying to explain... uh, Why people are polarized and why discussion is so hostile, and in particular, why there's so much absorption of just unreal views of the world, you know, climate change denialism. And basically, what he argues is because even the term global warming is seen as fighting words by the other side, you're just insulting people like us. And if you read, what what the left is trying to convey information, but if the other side reads it as a personal insight, uh, insult, they're just going to raise their hackles and set up their defenses. But, but Kahan has gone to meetings, bipartisan meetings of citizens, business people, you know, pillars of the community in Miami-Dade County, where you have rising ocean levels and everybody, right, is clearly sees a threat. If you have Democrats and Republicans at the local political level where they're actually responsible for solving problems and not just posturing, county level politics, where things have to be done like you actually like need clean water delivered to your house, that's an important issue. There's salt water coming into the into the pipes because the sea levels are rising. Okay, everybody is concerned about that. You can get everybody on board as long as you get the trolling, the insults off and as long as people see representatives talking about it at getting real about it. And they have to be bipartisan, they have to reflect, a, you know, a diversity of, of the full diversity of the people there so that people can I- have people they can identify who are Are addressing them, and you have norms of respectful discussion, and then they get into problem solving mode rather than competition about which which identity group is superior to which. And you really can get things done. Kahan shows in Miami Dade County, they actually adopted dozens of actions on climate change to address climate change at the county level, bipartisan, you could get people on board, but you had to kick the trolls out and set rules of engagement and discourse that are mutually respectful for everyone. And then people can focus on reality rather than reading terms like climate change as just a personal insight, insult.
3: Um, just, just a really quick follow-up on this question, um, and that's you know, for thinking about solutions for polarization, um, you know, one I agree with Elizabeth that if um, that if polarization is what we need is, is is the mode that we need to be in to get, um, you know, to to achieve sort of structural reforms and and um, to get closer to justice for for many marginalized groups in the U.S. Then I'm it doesn't really upset me that much. Um, in the long run, you know, the, the irony is that the I think the the thing that would do the most to reduce um, Polarization, I think, is it is commonly understood and and the sort of the negative polarization aspect of it um, or the affective polarization where you like just hate Republicans or you hate Democrats, which I agree is not great (laughs) at all. um, And it's very divisive within families uh, is actually um, it would require, I think, a multi-party democracy. Um, And to get to a multi-party democracy uh, probably requires an act of procedural escalation. That, that can only be done by Democrats <laughs> because Democrats are the only ones that believe in it. Um, it's, it's not even, I don't even, see, it's a significant position within within the party, but I think only Democrats would go for these reforms. Um, and that is to bring, you know, truly multi-party democracy to Congress, um, to, to eliminate gerrymandering by using, you know, some form of ranked choice voting, um, some scheme like that it doesn't have to be ranked choice voting, but some form of proportional representation where politicians, um, we have to realign the structural incentives of politicians right, to, to be able to, to appeal to to folks beyond their own bases. Um, and uh, it's just not something that can be done in a bipartisan fashion under current circumstances. And so um, to get to that point probably requires doing something pretty disruptive and then like, raising the national temperature in our politics again in the hopes that you will eventually— decrease the temperature of our politics by pursuing that reform. Um, but it's but it is something I really believe in pretty strongly um, that, that the the sort of the structure of our political system contributes to polarization. Um, particularly because if you you know if you dig deep into a lot of public opinion research, um, you know, pe- people's views really don't fit neatly into these two parties. Um, depending on the US, there should be anywhere from you know four, five, six different parties in the US. Um, and that, that I think, you know, make things a lot more complicated. (laughs) Um, but I do think that it would succeed in sort of taking this like, um, sort of mindless democratic versus, you know, Democrat versus Republican dynamic out of our politics and and replacing it with something else. Um, and it's, it's obviously not always a guarantee that you're going to improve things when you make changes like this. (laughs) Um, this is, there's some people who, who don't think that the, that making the the party nomination processes is more democratic has not necessarily led to good outcomes in the U.S. Um, but uh, I think it's worth experimenting with.
4: I just want to piggyback on that and say I, I completely agree, because one of the things I don't see us talk about very much, or maybe I'm missing it, but is that you know we have one state right now that has a divided state legislature. You know, one party is in control in every state in the country except Minnesota. And 29 states, one party is in control of everything. Now, that has been the norm in the South, except for while I was in the middle of realignment, when it got all messy and purple and everyone got excited, only to be disappointed. But one thing that that one-party politics does is, you know, as V.O. Key wrote for us, is it turns politics into the droll facade, right? This politics of entertainment and, you know, giant rallies and not a real contest of ideas, right? And I think, I mean, we're, we're working on an initiative on ranked choice voting. I mean, trying somehow to tell people here that it's okay to split ticket, you know, vote, telling people to, you know, trying to kind of break the locks of the national brands a little bit and just to get people to vote for what they think is best at a local and a state and that it doesn't have to all match. Right. Um, Because as long as we've got one party in control of all of these states, right. um, Then I, I worry about the, you know, the dialogue over reform in a kind of serious and substantive way, and it's not just a, you know, tit for tat back and forth depending on which party, you know, kind of is in charge. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's alarming, you know, that it's become so. Um, I mean, we really do have blue state, red state, and not just on election day, but we're living it right. Um, so, for what that's worth.
0: Can I do a quick follow-up on this, um, following up on your point, um, Elizabeth Cohen? Um, you said, like, it seems like people wring their hands um, no matter what, right? Like, oh, it's, it's, they're too close together, oh, they're too far apart. That seems right to me. Um, um, so I just want to invite you to expand on this point. Is there potentially an upside to many of these trends that... Um, we're concerned about because they definitely have downsides to them, but we're we're both in New York State, right? So I'm thinking in New York State, as our politics has gone from this kind of very mixed, we have sometimes Republican governors and mayors and there's all sorts of weird little fringe groups in it, to a much more just two-teens thing in which Democrats have uniform control. As that's happened, we've seen a number of good policy outcomes come along with it, like a increased state minimum wage, some really good stuff to make immigrants protected and aware of their rights, uh, universal pre-K in New York City. None of this is the sort of democratic socialist revolution that Bernie Sanders fans want, but it's there and it's real and it helps people. Um, So I just wanted to to ask you if you could follow up on that. Do you see potential upsides from a just two-block, two-group politics?
1: yeah i don't I don't know if I could say I see an upside. I mean, i I think the one the thing I said is the the, the ultimately what matters the most, which is if it takes polarization to get us to a point where we can successfully sustain um, democratic legislation, I mean, democratizing legislation and institutions, then that's what it takes. But I also think almost all of the discussion about polarization is really using polarization as a proxy for a variety of other things that that might stand in the way of that. Right. So, um, you know, how bad is it that people don't agree versus like people feel disenfranchised and totally drop out of politics or um, people, you know, um, will disown the tr- truth, basic truths, Um those seem to me to be problematic circumstances, but like the polarization itself isn't really solely responsible for that. and chi- and furthermore, you know i I look at Obama's style of leading in many cases as one that was very much geared toward, um, you know, conciliatory gestures. and it just I don't think those were his most successful moments. Um, and so that does, that leads me to think like, well, you know, it being conciliatory toward pretty polarized, um, people, you know, people on the other side of the polarization gap didn't, didn't, um, always lead us in a more just direction. You know, is it really, is it really worth it? Um, And I don't come away from those eight years thinking that that was was always successful, so, yeah. Could I intervene here?
2: I think it's impossible to exaggerate the significance of the fact that Obama's black. I just think that his racial identity itself, just among racially resentful whites, they simply couldn't get past that there's excellent polling to show that, you know, if you associated Obama with some policy, Republicans would hate it. But if you detach his name, oh, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> I don't think if Biden is elected, I I don't think actually that that he would ha- that he would if he's. In, 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 I think Obama uh, the oh, Biden's best-selling point, I think, is that he's conciliatory, that he's going to ramp down the levels of conflict and tension in his own persona and make it possible for at least some number of Republican-leaning voters to vote for the guy, because he's sort of the anti-conflict. He is the conciliatory candidate. I think people are sick and tired of the incredibly high levels of toxicity in politics today. And they don't like it. And Obama and Obama was unable to appeal to that because there's just this reaction: whites feeling that their power is slipping away with a black guy in office. Biden isn't gonna have that problem. I I, I do think that the politics of reconciliation are possible. And ironically, I'm not really a great fan of Biden, but in fact, that's really his biggest selling point. And he could do something to to, just in his own style and persona, which is not detachable from the fact that he had these white working class, you know identified, could actually be quite helpful and and move us forward in a, in a more productive way.
3: I guess my my only fear about Biden's conciliatory approach, I completely agree with you, um, that it is part of his appeal, and I think it's part of the reason that he's leading by so much right now, um, is because there are moderate Republicans or, you know, independents, you know, a <laughs> whole other discussion, I guess, about the, the concept of independence, but um, there's a, these are people that are saying, at least now, that they're willing to vote for him, um, and I, I, th- I think that will continue. Um, I think the danger is that if he gets into office um, and thinks that the magic he worked with the voters is going to work on Republicans in Congress, um, because I don't think that that's particularly realistic. I mean, especially when you think that to take the Senate, um, the Democrats have to eliminate, you know, like four of the remaining Republican moderates um, in Congress. Uh, and And so... Just by by virtue of taking the chamber, you're going to move the the ideological center of gravity on the Republican side to the right. Um, you might actually be dealing with a more hostile and more ideologically minded and more inflexible um, Republican minority in the Senate. Um, and so, I think that Biden needs to to combine um, an approach that is like you know rhetorically and aesthetically um, reaching across the aisle with a determination to make policy whether republicans want him to or not but if he waits for seven eight or nine republican senators to work with him on the things that he wants to do um his presidency is, is gonna is gonna flame out pretty quickly because he's not gonna get anything done
0: <laughs> so as a final question then we've covered the details of american democracy we've covered our assessment of it Um, We've covered changes in it, representation issues, polarisation. What is, or I'll put it this way, is there an overarching conception of democracy that progressives could appeal to that would be more effective than our current ideological framings? And the reason I ask that is I have a general impression that the political right in this country is more comfortable tying everything back to a big value. Like, they love to talk about freedom, talk about it all the time. And, you know, we, can, we as philosophers can quibble about the conception of freedom that they're using. But they're, when I did political consulting for campaigns, I'd always ask them, what's our Make America Great Again? What's your four words, or five, that, like, tell everybody what it's about and encapsulate everything and ground everything that you're doing, because make America great again. is clever? It appeals to the resentment and the nostalgia for lost social order that we've talked about. What's ours on the left? Is there? I'll just give you my thesis and you can tell me I'm getting it completely wrong. I've always had a hunch that some sort of Republican freedom or democracy as non-domination thing put into regular words might be more effective at uniting the party than either a thin liberal universalism or a sort of hardcore socialist equality or hardcore anti-establishment coming from, say, Sanders' world. I have no idea if I'm right, but I want to put the question back to the panel. What is there some overarching conception of democracy that the left should be using going forward um, I'll start with um, Professor Anderson. You want to take us away on this one?
2: There's this thing that Democrats, I think, have a serious liability. Uh, Democrats have tons of policies, and and the policies are very smart and wonky <laughs> and reality-grounded. Democrats, though, are relatively bad about telling stories, and I think telling stories is different from articulating big values like freedom and equality and democracy. I, people, the language of day-to-day politics is actually narrative, it's storytelling. And, and I, I do think that that is a real liability Democrats have to tell a good story in which ordinary citizens can feel that that resonates with them. But you know, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not a politician. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't say that I that I have like a you know a great story that I think will will resonate, but it does have to it has to reach people at an emotional level. Philosophers aren't really all that great about that because we're talking about high ideals and abstractions of various sorts. Um, but but if you can reach people at an emotional level and have people say, "Yeah, that's real." that That's where where you can have them. But Democrats got to figure out how to tell a good story, and we're not good at that.
4: Well, I'll jump in just to say that, you know, it's it's kind of the this catch twenty two, you know, for Democrats because you know, I feel like starting. In the 60s, the Republicans really started pushing this kind of individualistic, you know, narrative, you know, individual qualifications, your individual experience, right? Look at your life. Does this affect your life, right? Even to the point of, you know, well, have you felt discriminated against as a woman? Oh, you haven't? Well, and then it puts on these kind of blinders as if, you know, because I make equal pay, then therefore— you know, there must not be a gender pay gap, right? We hear this all the time with students, well, I didn't have white privilege, right? And it was a deliberate look at your individual experience and somehow block out the collective. Democrats doing the opposite, right? Really pushing us to understand how, you know, movements work, how to consciousness raise, you know, through different movements, to all of that. And yet, that obviously leads to better policy, but it's really hard to then whittle it down, right, to one slogan, right? To have, you know, when you're pushing to have, you know, everyone with a seat at the table, then it's much harder than to come up with the menu, right, so to speak. And so um I think— that's one of the reasons that, you know, the Republicans can go to like a least common denominator and like hit one note so hard and it works, right? And why that's so difficult, you know, for Democrats, but um, you know, some kind of some kind of concept about everyone deserving um, a seat at the table, we make better decisions when everyone has a seat at the table. Um, and, and I agree completely about the narrative need Um, to hear directly from human beings and the experience we had. uh, I mean, the Democrats are a super minority here in this state, but we had one representative female that we got a seat. We flipped in 2018 who single handedly got unanimously the right for DACA nurses to practice in the state. Now, how in the hell is that possible in Arkansas? Well, She got the DACA nurses to come talk to them, to talk about why they wanted to practice in the state. She put the human beings in front of them, you know, and she also wrote personal letters to every single one of them about why she was moved to do this. She just like, um, I don't know, cut through all the noise by putting the human beings stories, you know, right in front of them. Um, And to me, it was a really, I know it's one, one, one example, but it just was remarkable to me. And then once they heard from people directly, not through a filter, it changed, you know, it's just like, they made an exception, right? I'm not saying to change it, but they go, Oh, well, these are good people. Right. Well, sometimes that's all it takes. Right. And we saw a little bit of movement. So, Something about walking in each other's shoes, something about everybody at a voice at the table, something about we're all in this together kind of thing, something with the human narrative. I think it's the only way. I think George George Floyd's the example, you know, of something we witnessed that story that has moved folks because that's that's the only way I think you can kind of find a common denominator among Democrats pushing for diversity and kind of pluralism.
1: I think, um, yeah, I think that this idea that Democrats have not successfully um, been able to tell or, or leverage stories is really important. Um, and so, like, I'm just kind of pulling themes from a couple of the colloquies we've had, you know, the stories need to reach communities. <clears throat> they need to put us in conversation with people we kind of are familiar with, and know, to some degree, we those are the people we have to self-govern with at the local level anyway. And I think, like, you know, I think there are many components to why make America great again was so successful. Um, better than what is it transition to greatness was was tried auditioned recently and does not seem to have succeeded but you know i think what it, what it did was multifaceted but, and one thing that democrats could and would want to do and like many of the things the phrase did is just get people to see themselves in whatever conception is being put forward i don't think that it has to be like that there's a vast difference between talking about Democrats talking about freedom and Democrats talking about justice, you know, like at the end of the day, those are too abstract um, to draw on for making particular um, decisions, but people need to see themselves in whatever vision is being put forward. And um, and if they—and, and, you know, our stories, we're not going to have just one story. People can't see them—all see themselves in one single story. Um, but— but whatever it is that's that's kind of selected from the basket of possible stories, it just has to be something that people can identify with. Um, that's how we moved quickly toward change on views of things like um, LGBT rights and same-sex marriage, right? People might have not seen themselves, but they saw their families um, in the stories, and it... it Led to a pretty quick shift, so I think that whatever stories we pick, it has to succeed in that level.
3: Um. So I, I really, I agree with everything that was just said. Um. And I, but I also want to just push back just a little bit um, on the idea that Democrats are worse at this than Republicans, which which is that. Um, part of that perception is produced by our insane political system, and actually, like if you just awarded. Um, seats um, in office to the people that got the most votes this century, then Democrats would have won, like, two out of every three elections um, in in the 21st century so far. Um, And if you go back to 2016 and you think, like, you know, like, why was Make America Great Again such a great slogan? It really wasn't. You know, like, it's a slogan that got 46% of the vote. Um, And so it does have an emotional resonance that I, you know, I'm not going to deny, and I I totally agree with you about that. Um, But I think it's worth keeping in mind that that Democrats already do kind of have a majority. It's just not been expressed in our politics due to some of the, some of the design features of our system. Um, that being said, uh, you know, um, we don't want to keep losing. <laughs> um, and so we have to think about ways just to, to sell the party and its ideals uh, or just to sell the ideas of the progressive left generally to people. Um, and I do think it's the case that most people could say with certainty, like, five things that the Republican Party stands for um, and that those things are not just sort of like policy initiatives, you know, those, those are like ideas. Um, one of the things that shows up in, in research is, um, people are like, uh, philosophically conservative, but, but more progressive than they when you, when you get down to the brass tacks of specific policies. Um, and so I think, um, uh, I, I agree with Elizabeth Anderson about the, the necessity of sort of tying, tying these policy initiatives together with something a little bit more coherent, um, and to me, it would be some 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 spin on the idea that we're all in this together, you know, um, pushing back on that that sort of individual individualistic framework um, of like, you know, rather than talking about it in terms of freedom, you 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 um, you take Republican policy positions and you say, um, you know, Republicans think that we're you know, you're on your own, right? Like, whatever happens to you in your life, you're on your own. We have a different conception of politics, right? Um, and that that's, that we're all there. And I hesitate to make this argument because, because Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan was stronger together. Um, and she lost. Um, but I, but I do think that some appeal to social solidarity, um, you know, uh, making it clear that the, that progressives, um, like do want to make things better for, for working people in particular. Um, and that includes like white working people, you know, I mean, it, it includes maybe an initiative to, to do some work appealing to people that, you know, maybe they won't vote for you in this election, right? But, like, um, the, I think people need to see um, that Democrats care uh, about those folks, you know, the idea that work should pay, you know, like all work should pay, um, whether, that, whether that work is, is for a company, whether that work is in the home, whether that's the folks caring for your kids. Um, I really feel like the, the coronavirus crisis has laid bare um, how much, like, critical work gets done in society, Um, by marginal people uh, who are not compensated and not appreciated. Um, And to the extent that, you know, we could cultivate an ethic of um, really communicating to the people that, that take care of, that take care of us, you know, that like that build our houses and and, and deliver our groceries and, 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 you know, fix the plumbing when the plumbing goes out or, or, you know, take care of us in the hospital that that's all part of the same system uh, of caring for each other and, and, and producing a society um, where, you know, you are not going to be left by the side of the road at the slightest mistake. <laughs> you know, um, so I'm, I'm not a campaign consultant, so I don't have anything snappy to offer you. Um, but I do think the party needs to make an, a much greater effort to emphasize the way that the, the specific policy initiatives will produce a different kind of society um, that will lead to better and more just outcomes.
4: We 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 worked on a local campaign here that flipped a, a seat and we use the Mr. Rogers that you know, look for the helpers, you know, who are the helpers in society? Cause that's what politicians should be. That's what government should be, you know, help when you need it. Right. Um, and who's in it for that kind of thing. Um, and that was pre-coronavirus. It would have played even really well, I think now. So I completely agree about something about, you know, social solidarity, um, at a I don't know at this particular moment in time and I know she's stronger together but as you said she did win so technically not technically
1: does anybody think maybe that you know it's not so much um what's the overarching conception of democracy that Democrats can use but kind of What's the overarching conception of democracy for this moment? And to return to something, I apologize, I can't remember who said this, but just there, it might be that a sufficient number of people are fatigued by the amount of anger they've been asked to feel over the last four years or possibly longer, that like there is a message for this moment, maybe that we need to um, find. To, to draw those people, assuming that people who are still incredibly like wrapped up in their anger can't be reached, I don't know. That just seems to me like it—it's what ha- it's what has to be said now.
4: I, I I completely agree with you, and I think it pushes back too against the the zero sum game you know, vision, that there's, there's room for every, there's enough for everybody. There's room for everybody, you know, kind of thing, because it is this, this constant pitting of, um, you know, us versus them. And there's a finite, you know, pieces of the pie, right. Um, as if somehow your success or your, you know, um, citizenship, right. It means there's not room for mine. Right. Makes no sense, but it's been successfully done, you know, that way on the other side. And there really are very few things that are truly a zero sum game when you get down to brass tacks, you know? Um, and yet we kind of, I, I, I don't hear that piece um, like effectively countered, I think, in some kind of way, that would be useful. Um, but you know, this is a this is definitely a moment,
2: right? Yeah. Well, I, I I think we are deeply misled by the pie metaphor for thinking about economics. Economics is about flows right, if I have money in my pocket, I can spend it and employ these other people, <laughs> right? What? Really, we should be talking about what goes around, comes around, right? If we can make our fellow Americans more prosperous, they're going to spend money employing us, right? You need to keep the circulation of, you know, of income going and why thing widening the circles around which it circulates helps everybody, then everybody gets access to more help, <laughs> right? That's what the economy's for, is you buy the help of other people. Um, but they need to be paid in order to sustain themselves. And there's a basic sense of decency. It's why the minimum wage, if you give ordinary citizens the opportunity to vote for it, everybody understands. It's outrageous to ask somebody. To labor for you know full time and not have enough money to afford an apartment or decent schools for your kids or, or things like that um, and, and that that's that's something that can resonate
3: yeah I mean I, I, I agree that this is the moment for a, a more hopeful message I mean I, when I'm thinking back on the Democratic primaries before the world went sideways. Um, I, I did think that um, a, a more sort of hopeful, positive vision was going to gain more traction in the primary itself and whoever could attach themselves to that hope would probably win. Um, and I also think that we're in this really unique moment where so many millions more people are are finding out how close they are to being ruined um than has has ever been the case in in the living memory of, of anybody today um, but I think it makes it possible to um, to use the fear that's gripping the country right now um, and instead of like harnessing that fear or just like making it a campaign about about what a jerk trump is, which is like I don't think anybody really disputes that at this point you know um to to make it uh, to make it a campaign about um you know what what kind of a world could we bring into being where you're not one pet you know where you know 100 million people are not one paycheck away from uh from destitution you know i, I just think that, that that has to be the 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 hopeful part of of progressive politics is um is bringing people on board with the idea um that you know that most people need more than their individual merit <laughs> or their individual efforts can produce, and that that's what society is for, and that progressives are for society. <laughs> progressives are for a society.
2: I just wanted to have a final thought, which has to do with situating the current moment in in American history. So the hot-button issue on which Trump won the election was immigration. And there's all this anxiety about immigration. And you see in the history of the United States that whenever you see a local peak in the percentage of foreign born, uh, just demographically, you get this kind of racial panic. It happened even with the Irish, you know, in the mid 19th century. Even even at the time of the Revolution, people were in a panic over Germans. And then Asians, Chinese, Japanese. It's happened with every group. But one really interesting phenomenon is that it always passes when the new immigrant group that seems so different and strange and threatening becomes fully American. They're speaking English, right? They follow the immigrant pathway. Here in Southeast Michigan, we have the largest concentration of immigrants from the Middle East in North America. And I've seen it personally. When I first came to Michigan, uh, in the late 80s Most of the people from the Middle East Were running like little kebab shops Or gas stations But now I'm seeing their You know, their kids And this has been now going on For a good number of years They got enough money They're sending their kids to University of Michigan They're becoming doctors, lawyers It's actually like a classic Immigration story And you know I have students wearing hijab in my classroom. Nobody blinks an eye. They're so clearly American, <laughs> you know in every possible way. Um, so I think that I think the current moment of panic over immigration is gonna pass if we are true to our historical form, and the next generation is like totally cool with the increasing diversity. You just don't see young people in America being at all in a panic about it. So, in a part, what's happened is you have, you know, an older generation clinging to power, but you have generational turnover. Eventually, you know, the oldsters are going to have to hand over the keys to the car. It's inevitable, and we're going to see a different kind of politics when that happens.
1: Thank
0: you for listening to the political philosophy podcast if you enjoy this show there's a few ways that you can support it to allow us to continue producing content like this firstly as i said at the beginning social media shares recommending to friends is always great and that's how we've seen almost all of our growth is just organically like that if you are able to support in a monetary way we have a patreon So, we don't do any commercial advertising on this show, and all of the costs associated with it come from voluntary contributions from the audience. I've been suggesting $2 an episode, but that's a suggestion. Whatever feels right to you. And finally, we have a merchandise store now. So, you can get t shirts, hoodies, coffee cups, and so on with the political philosophy podcast uh, logo on. So, Links to all of that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And once again, to anyone who's done any of those things, a really big, genuine thank you. You are a part of bringing this sort of engaged, in depth content to tens of thousands of people for free. So you are awesome and you should feel good about yourself. Apart from that, Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week.